Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So welcome to week two of the Storm Tossed Family series. We're so glad that you're here with us this fall as we look at God's truth and God's word for how we can develop our families into the families that he has really created them to be. And as we dig into it today, as you study the writings and the life of, of Jesus, well, not his own writings, but as they recorded what he said, I'm not sure that Jesus was a family man. Now, we know, of course, he was single his whole life, and he was celibate. He never had a wife. But beyond that, Jesus had some really strong opinions, it would seem, about families. For example, when Jesus went to the disciples and called them into ministry and asked them to join him in what he was doing, you can see here he went and saw James and John working with their father. Jesus called them. They immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. He pulled them right out of the family business to say, it's time for you to be with me. And they were with Jesus day and night for three years. And, and leaving the family business would have had huge ramifications for the rest of the family. There was another day Jesus was teaching, and it seems he was in a building of some kind, and his mother, that would be Mary, and some of her other children came to see Jesus, and they told Jesus, hey, your family is outside. And Jesus didn't like that comment. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Then pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He says, well, they're not my family. You are my family, the one who do the will of God. Still another day, Jesus was out teaching and a man came to him and said, hey, I would like to sort of join up with you guys. I think he was saying, I'd like to be like one of the, the disciples and he said, but first, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. It's a strong statement. Jesus says, you don't have time for family burials if you're going to follow me. And then he went even further another day when he was teaching. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In the Gospel of Luke, a similar comment was recorded that goes even further. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Seems a little confusing, right? 
It's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. I came here to church today for week two of the storm-tossed family to figure out how the Bible can make my family the best version that it can be. Now it seems like Jesus is not necessarily all in on the family. So anytime you study this verse, the first thing that people do is they qualify it, and I'm going to qualify it too. Because clearly, this cannot be taken literally. This has to be hyperbole. Jesus is using strong language because he wants to make a big point about what really comes first. Because Jesus can't really be anti-family, right? That would contradict the entire rest of the Bible. In the Old Testament, it was a blessing anytime a child was given to a family. And there's a lot of the Old Testament dedicated to the heartache of being childless. And in fact, infertility is a major theme in the Bible. And it's a celebration every time a family comes together that couldn't previously exist. In the poetry of the Old Testament, families are prayed over on multiple occasions. And in the wisdom and the teaching of the New Testament, the Bible goes into great detail about how to be a good father, how to be a good mother, how to be a good son, how to be a good daughter. So Jesus is not anti-family. Instead, he's using very strong language to make a point. And that point is this. Family is not first. Jesus is talking about the place and the priority that family can have in our lives. And so he's making a serious point. It's clear from the teachings of Scripture that Jesus is drawing us in by saying family cannot be first. Choosing to follow Jesus is a total resetting of our priorities. Everything else becomes a distant second behind following Jesus and following his teaching. If we put family first, then clearly Jesus is not first, and that is a major problem. And I think for us today, just like in the day of Jesus, our challenge is no different. See, it comes very naturally to us to say, no, 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 I put family first. And most people, when they say that, are talking in the context of a work-life balance, right? They say, no, 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 family first. And I totally get that. But for the Christian, what we're going to talk about today is that family does not come first. The family cannot come first. The family will not come first if we are truly learning to follow Jesus in the way he's called us. But here's how I think we work ourselves into this situation where we end up living our lives in such a way that it seems as though family comes first. See, our family has dramatic influence on our lives in two principal ways. We're going to call them the two eyes of families. These two ways are passed on from parents to children, as those children become parents, then they also exert those two ways, those two eyes of influence on their families. And soon, they can take over our lives so that they become the most important things. The first eye would be identity. One of the basic fundamental questions that we ask ourselves as people is, who am I? Right? Now, I don't know about you. I really like babies. I find them entertaining especially now that there are no babies who live in my house. So whenever I see your babies, it's super fun for me. And one of my favorite phases that babies go through, and all parents have seen this, there's this phase that babies go through where they suddenly realize that their hand is attached to their body and that they can control it. So babies will be flailing, and then they go like, whoa, look at that. I can move that. And they, an hour later, they go, whoa, I still have it. And I can still move it. And they start becoming aware of who they are, right? There must have been another day similar for all of us that we can't remember. But there has to be a day when we looked into a mirror for the first time and starting to understand like, hey, that's me. That's what I look like. And then they went back to a mirror and went, wow, still me. 
Because we grow in this awareness all the time of saying, who am I? What do I have? What do I control? And of course, who am I goes much, much deeper than that. In fact, the way that people identify has never been bigger and never been a, a more significant buzzword and topic than it is right now in our society. Now, early in life, of course, your family largely defines your identity for you. They tell you who you are and you buy in. Your family might tell you that you're smart. They might tell you that you're talented. They might tell you that you're athletic. They also might tell you that you're not smart. They might tell you that you're a huge hassle. They might tell you that you're an embarrassment. And that identity becomes assigned to you in ways that we are still understanding the impact of that. So much of that identity we do have no control over. You have no control over your ethnicity. You have no control over the birth order between you and your siblings. You have no control over where you grew up. Many of your hobbies, interests, and much of your personality comes from your family identity. And so the identity that has been passed on to you is a part of who you are forever. But beyond your identity and who you are, your family has another huge influence on your life, and that is the eye of inheritance. Now, when we think of inheritance, we usually think first and foremost of the legal inheritance, the money and the property that's handed down from generation to generation when someone dies. I think for a storm-tossed family, that might be the least important inheritance out of all of them because there are many, many other things that are inherited that shape our lives on a daily basis. You know, you basically inherit your IQ. You largely inherit your looks, whether you have good looks or still emerging looks. Yes, I know you can get in shape. I know you can develop style, but you can't make your face symmetrical. That was given to you. There are so many things about your genetic disposition that you have no control over. Are your earlobes going to be attached? Are you going to have a, a widow's peak in your hairline? Or something really, really important. Will you like cilantro? I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are some people that by genetic disposition do not like cilantro. See, Normal, stable, well-adjusted people, they enjoy the taste of cilantro. But for those who can't, what's happened to you is you had passed down by your family a set of olfactory receptor genes called the OR6A2. These genes pick up the smell of aldehyde chemicals, which are found in both cilantro and soap. So if you are one of those burdened, disillusioned anti-cilantrites, at least you know it's not really your fault that you can't enjoy cilantro and that you have every right to blame your parents for the injustice. And I can tell you, you might want to switch to parsley. Because there's so much that we inherit from them that we have no choice over. You inherit your talents, your abilities, athleticism, musicality, your social skills. There's so much that they give us. We also inherit baggage and drama from our families. You don't have to nod. I know some of you have your family here in the room, but you know what I'm talking about. It just sort of came with the gig. Some of you may have inherited a family history like this. Uh, so, Ellis Island. I have to admit, I have lived in New York my whole life and I've never been here. I figured that, most people haven't. I, um, I actually had a relative come through here. Really? What? What? Well, what was that thing? 
Uh, no. Uh, you know, I was just thinking that uh, you can't really know where you're going until you know where you've been. Ain't that right, Larry? Amen, brother. Kind of deep for a first date, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> what is this? I just found the page. saw that going differently in my mind. So my family never saw him again. Well, except for on the wanted posters. Like, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm, when I saw it on the computer, it said the butcher of Cadiz. You know, but I, th I thought it was a profession, not a headline. It's just one of those horrible family legacies we've all tried to forget. Now, you may or may not have a serial killer in the baggage of your family. I don't know. But we all know that we inherit this baggage. So no matter how much we want to say that we're a self-made person, we're largely not. We've been shaped by the two eyes of our families, the identity and the inheritance. For some, this fills you with gratitude and a sense of responsibility. For others, this fills you with some pain and a desire to do things differently because I believe that for all of us this produces an intentional response and this is where we have to start being careful because once we have a clear picture of the role that identity and inheritance play in the shaping of who we are it begins to take on a dominant role especially in how parents raise their children we either choose to intentionally go with our identity or intentionally to go against it in so many ways both big and small. For example, my wife, who's not here, I should have told her that I was going to tell this story. Um, she's about two minutes late to everywhere she goes. About, only about two minutes. And I know why. She's two minutes late because she did one more thing before she left the house. She put away one more set of cleats or threw in one more load of laundry or put one more dish in the dishwasher. I totally get that. But for her, she's always about two minutes late. And she considers that to be a major victory because the identity and the inheritance in terms of punctuality that she had growing up she was part of the late family they were always late they were late everywhere they went probably others people from her family are going to show up at these services today too uh, but uh, well later so we don't have to worry about it um, <laughs> they were late every and she hated being late 
And so she said, when she became an adult, I don't want to be late like that anymore. I want to make a change. I want to do it differently than how I was raised. So she made a change. Now, for me, two minutes late is actually about 17 minutes late because my identity and inheritance growing up was we didn't run late. We actually didn't run at all. We arrived on time and on pace pretty much all the time. We also had kind of a small, neat little family. So it was just different. So I feel like, no, I want to lean into my identity. She's saying, no, 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 I want to do it very differently. Because I think for all of us, we have this idea growing up. We want to do things just a little bit better than how we received them, which is a good thing. But when parents become obsessed with passing on the perfect identity and the ideal inheritance to their children, then it becomes an idol. Now the family is first because we've made it our absolute highest priority. Identity, yes. Inheritance, yes. Idolatry, no. If your family is everything, if your family comes first, there is no limit to what you will do for them. If family comes first, you will seek out every possible opportunity, every tutor, every sport, every club, every camp, every coach, every lesson, every challenge. You will protect, shield, safeguard, insulate, while at the same time you will champion, defend, stand up for, and generally stage manage your children. If family comes first, the emotional state of your family will rise and fall on the success of these activities. Earning an A, having a perfect recital performance, hitting a home run, or a beautiful dunk become our greatest goal. And any setback in these areas is a crushing defeat. If family comes first, much of this will be motivated by a sense of guilt and pressure. The guilt comes from wanting to honor our own identity and inheritance by passing it along. And the pressure comes from the desire to do it even better so that we can push the bar of achievement generationally higher and higher. If family comes first, our work to improve, achieve, succeed, and thrive will never end. We will never know if what we have done is good enough, and we will always worry that we should have done one more thing differently, or done something more, or done something else. And it is exhausting. The great irony of putting family first is this. By putting family first, we are absolutely guaranteeing that our family can never, ever be everything that Jesus wants it to be. I want to say that again. By putting family first, we are absolutely guaranteeing that our family can never, ever be everything that Jesus wants it to be. See, when we reorder our family according to the gospel and according to the teachings of Jesus, then we start to see how God can use our family for his glory. One of my favorite teachers, Francis Chan, he talks just a little bit about the relationship between family and mission. What happened um, in my generation when we were younger, uh, there were those who were radical, but there weren't people, once they got married, everything changed. Once they had kids, everything changed. And I'm just praying, oh God, could I be an example of someone who's married and has kids and is still thinking kingdom first? Like saying, you know, like 1 Corinthians 7, those who are married should live as though they're not. Uh, there's a sense in which this mission is bigger and can we still live and take risks and still surrender our lives and, and say, you know what, it's me, my wife, my family, I wanna demonstrate to them, you know what, look, 
when we follow Christ, yeah, that was a little scary. Yeah, that might have been a little dangerous. Yeah, that was not the, you know, logical move to make, but God did call us that direction, and let's head that way, and I want my kids to experience what it, what it looks like when we live by faith, but not only that, I want to be an example to the young people to say, you know what, your, your mission with the Lord doesn't end when you get married, and suddenly, oh, well, you're dating, so focus on each other, and oh, it's your first year of marriage, you know, just focus on each other, and oh, you just had a kid, you know what, then then take time for that, that little kid, and until he goes to school then you'll be free but then once they're in school it's like oh they're teenagers now just collect that family together and worry about yourselves but then you're you're teaching them this mentality again is not about going out in the harvest and being a worker (laughs) there's no excuse for that that is not what you, you can't find that in this book it's about living for him and you're missing out not only are you missing out on life but your children are missing out on life when you do that. That's why so many of the kids, when they turn 18, they just ditch God altogether because they didn't see anything real in your life. I don't want to be negative. I don't want to sound negative. I'm just, I just get sad because I go, not only are you missing out on life, but we are turning away our children by the droves because our lives are not the adventure that they see in Scripture, and they are not experiencing the Holy Spirit. They're experiencing like a Christian version of the American dream that's watered down, and and we just make excuses for really idolizing our families um, rather than really putting Christ in the mission first. To truly lead our families well, we have to reorient our sense of family so that Jesus is first. Jesus talked about this, of course. He actually talked about how to balance the worries of this world. In Matthew 6, he said, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Now, I've heard this verse a million times, but it it struck me differently this week. Because Jesus said, all this in the plural, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? I've always thought of it very personally. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? But these are collective concerns. In fact, these are largely family concerns. These are the things that you're responsible for if you lead a family, right? Food, nourishment, what are we going to wear? This is your job. And he says, no, no, no. I, I know that you need those things. I already know that. But reorient yourself above what your family needs and instead... Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Putting Jesus first brings the rest of life into alignment and balance. All of our other needs, our wants, our desires, they're reshaped by Christ and then met in Christ in exactly the way that he defines. Because once Jesus is first, we see our true identity and our true inheritance. Those we can learn to pass on. In Christ, we have been chosen and adopted. You may not have chosen to be part of your family. It's actually a funny thing about family. The more I think about it, there's only one person in my life that I really chose to be related to, and that was my wife, right? All of the rest God kind of picked for me. In fact, it's probably arrogant for me to say that I chose my wife because luckily she chose me, right? So I may have never, ever once decided who I would be related to. But 
You have been chosen and adopted in Christ. Since before the world, you were chosen to be his child. Your identity forever is that you are a child of the king. Tim Keller has a funny saying that I kind of like. He says, only a child would have the courage to wake up a king at three in the morning and ask for a glass of water. And that is the privilege that we have been given as children of the king. We are not bound by the identity that came from our family that is not perfect. Peter, he said it this way, you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your ancestors. You are not locked into that identity. You have the identity of, of Christ who has been put on you, who has chosen you. You also have the true inheritance that comes only in Christ. He has filled us with the Spirit so that we carry God with us in us, everywhere we go in this life. In him, we have every spiritual blessing and everything that we need to follow him. We have his protection, his empowerment, his compassion, his mercy. We know that he walks with us in every moment of this life. And we know that we have the security of spending eternity with him forever. Paul in Romans says, The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. That is the inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ in God. I don't know all of you personally. I wish I did. I don't know how the identity and the inheritance of your parents has equipped you or held you back in this life. But know this, you are not chained to that identity or that inheritance. You are also not obligated by it. Whether you feel it as a blessing or you feel it as a burden, know that you have true identity and true inheritance found only in the person of Christ. And when we learn to put Christ first, when he is in that foremost position in our lives, then you can see how the rest of your life becomes ordered by him and then can be fully used by him. Russell Moore said it this way, if you hold your family gently, you can find the freedom to see your family flourish. I'm going to ask the band to come back up and they're going to lead us in a closing song and then after that song, we're going to do something totally different. But... Right now in this moment, go ahead and just, just reflect. Reflect on the identity that you've been given, not by your parents, but in Christ. And maybe it's a time of confession to say, you know what? I have allowed my family to become my number one. I have given in to the idolatry of family to say there is nothing that comes before me and my children. Because to take something that, that could be you know, ordered under the person of Christ and instead to move it to the top, it separates us from him and it keeps us from living the life that he's called us and our families into so let's pray God we worship you here today in the beauty of your holiness thank you that you have given us your word and God for those who are connected in families I thank you for that blessing and we know that family is a blessing and it's a responsibility and in these moments, that responsibility can feel heavy. But you've promised us that your burden is easy and that your weight, your yoke is light. So God, we give over to you our families. Use them as you see fit. 
We give over to you our own lives. Use our lives as you see fit. And then equip us to go out in this world and follow you in all of these ways that our families would serve in the mission of God in ways that we have never seen before. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name.